this passage deals with I, I'm going to call the, the doctrine of conversion. And I want to go through that as we're going to read through it together in just a minute and then kind of work through the essence of what I mean by the doctrine of conversion. Uh, Spurgeon talks about this a lot in his books. And Charles Hayden Spurgeon is one of my, my heroes of the faith. And uh, he was a blustery, kind of vivacious man. He, he reminded me a lot of, Char, uh, of Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon reminded me a lot of Churchill. They had a lot the same personality and character. One was in the world of politics and one was in the world of the church. I remember, you know, the famous story about Churchill goes that one day he was at a state dinner and some pompous upper class uh, lady who had, didn't like the way he acted. She looked over at him one day across from the table at the dinner and said, Mr. Churchill, if I were married to you, I wouldn't let you drink so much. Churchill had a habit of enjoying greatly his Johnny Walker Black Label Scotch. Now, he looked across at her and he said, Madam, if I was married to you, I would drink more. <laughs> One day Spurgeon was approached by a very righteous woman in his congregation and said, Mr. Spurgeon, the only problem I have with you is that stinky black cigar you're always smoking. And that's right, Spurgeon smoked cigars. He looked at the lady, it's recorded, and said, Madam, but I smoke to the glory of God. I like both of them. They're two of my heroes. Spurgeon looked at this passage and he wrote a wonderful little book. If you've never read it, it is a great book to read. It's a small book, one of his booklets. Back in Spurgeon's day, you know, you wrote small booklets for evangelism. And instead of going and talking to people, you wrote small booklets and they were published and they were given out to make people think about their faith. And Spurgeon wrote one book. It's a classic. If you've never read it, you need to. And it's called All About Grace. I was going to call this message today All About Grace, but then I realized I'd get in trouble with the people for stealing his book title. So we'll just stay with the doctrine of conversion. This is another one of those texts. Paul likes to do these things in his New Testament writings in which the ten verses that make up our text are again all one sentence. All one sentence. And we're going to look and see what they say. And I, I think the, the message of the doctrine of conversion is the theme. And so we're going to draw from that situation. And it is all of grace as we're about to see. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 1 we'll be reading. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. And you were dead. Let that word sink in. Very first word in describing the doctrine of conversion. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Now, that's a 
powerful conjunction. That is not the middle of a beginning of a new sentence. That's the beginning of a new thought in a complex sentence. Okay, we're all get our all grammar just right here. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, and listen to these three things that happened together with Christ. And made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. In kindness toward us in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, to understand the doctrine of grace, we need to understand that it breaks down into four concepts that this passage teaches. The first concept or the first point of the doctrine of conversion is our state before conversion. And then we go to the second one, which is our state after conversion. So he talks about before, then after conversion, and then he talks about the means of conversion. How does conversion take place? And then finally, he talks about the purpose of conversion. But before we start into our main points, I want you to go to the conclusion with me. Hang with me. Well, we're going to start with the conclusion. What I want to accomplish today in this study is for you and I to think through the key questions that are written in that conclusion. If you look on your paper, you'll see them. The key questions to think about in the grace-based doctrine of conversion. One, are you a sin and works focused Christian or are you a God and walk focused Christian are you divided in your mind are you a saved by grace but live by works Christian now we want to work through those questions as we go through the major teachings of this text now join me again if you would looking back up at verse 1 to 3 the first truth about the state before conversion is that we are dead. Now, we're not just dead physically. We are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, why does he describe it as dead in trespasses and sins? Well, because death is a separation from life, right? That's basically the essence of it. If you're declared dead... All the signs and the functioning of the human body quits working. Your heart quits beating. The brain waves quit functioning. Your system shut down. Sometimes they shut down all at once because they're shocked to the system like a expanding bullet hitting the chest. Or sometimes the body system shut down gradually one by one as the body succumbs to an illness or to an old age that has complicated illnesses all ganging up on you at one time. 
I can't tell you how many times I have been with family in the hospital room as they gather together to say goodbye to mom or dad or grandma or grandpa. And one by one, we would just watch and see the systems of the body shutting down. I remember with this one family that was very close to us in our church and the, was with them as they watched their mother die. And we were there when the, with them and they were talking and the nurse would come in and tell them what was going on because she was on hospice in the hospital and they were keeping her very comfortable. They had made the decision to go to palliative care to preserve her dignity and keep her comfortable as she died. And, and there, the nurse would come in and say, well, well the, the kidneys are gone now. She's not producing fluids. And then a little bit later, she'd come in and say, well, uh, the blood pressure is failing. We're not getting the blood pumping. A little bit later, she'd come in and say, well, there's no oxygen hardly in the blood now. The lungs are not working. The respiratory f functions are not working. And one by one, the system shut down until finally... There's not one aspect of the body working. And when the essence of no work of the body continuing, no heartbeat, no brain wave, and so forth and so on, that's when they come in and they write on the paper, time of death, da-da-da-da-da. Now what are they really describing? They're describing that that person that the family loved and cared for is now separated from life. When the Bible talks about us being spiritually dead, it's really talking about us being separated from the life of God and from God himself. Because the family is separated from us when they pass. They're no longer there with us. They've gone on. Oh, we, we do sentimental things, don't we all, to kind of make ourselves or loved ones feel better and say, well, well, I know they're watching over us. Now, they may be. Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses, and I'm not sure what's the perfectly correct way to interpret that, but I'm not going to argue with anyone that thinks that, that they are or aren't watching over us now. But the fact of the matter is, they're not with us. Okay, there is a separation. Whether they're watching over us and seeing what's going on or not, there is a separation. Have you ever noticed how in our culture we don't know how to die? When my grandparents were alive, you know where they died? In their bed at home with the family gathered around them. When my father died, he died in a hospital room by himself with just the doctors and nurses. We separate in our culture the reality of dying from the reality of our lives, don't we? That's one reason why it's so hard for us to deal with death. I know people who didn't get to go to a funeral until they were 18 years old, had no idea what a funeral was like because mama was afraid it'd be too hard on them. Separating a child from understanding life as well as us understanding life. Death is a part of life and it really means a separation from the existence of life itself. So when it says that we are dead in trespasses and sins, it's saying that we are separated from life in, in, in reality, that means the life of God. We are separated from God in his life, and we have no hope unless something changes. 
Now, the next thing that it mentions there in verse 6, excuse me, in verses 2 and 3, is we're controlled by the world and Satan. Let me read that to you again. And once you, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that's a phrase that biblically definitely refers to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh. So though, what we just read there brings out the other two points on what it means to be in the state before conversion. Before I turn to Christ, what is my life like? Well, I'm dead. And then before I turn to Christ, I am controlled by the world and by Satan. Now, you see, Satan can manipulate the world. He can manipulate me to get me and the world together to do what he wants done. You may think you're an independent John Wayne kind of guy. But let me tell you what. If you've not come to Christ and accepted him as your Lord and Savior, you're a puppet on a string being pulled and twisted and turned by your sin nature and by Satan and the world. And the reason that the world and Satan can manipulate us and control us is because we have in our essence not God life, but the working of our sinful nature. Now we find in that verse that I just read, and the ESV does, like many of the more literal translations, it talks about the, uh, once we, in verse 3 it says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our, what, flesh? Now I believe the NIV and many others correctly translate that because of its context as meaning sinful nature. The word flesh, sukos, is a word that can have different meanings, totally dependent on the context. Again, we get back to our problem of English being a sloppy language, whereas Greek was a precise and tight language. The word flesh has different contextual meanings, and here the context of the word flesh is not talking about my flesh and blood, right there, my physical hand, but it's talking instead about the sinful nature, that which is natural to me without God. The me that doesn't have God in me and with me, that doesn't have the God life anymore. I just have the human life until God says he's done with letting me have a chance to come to him. Now, that's my state before I become a Christian. Now the next verse, verse 4, talks about the contrast. That's why for the, uh, the strong Greek contrasting word where it says, but. That's a word showing contrast between what's before and what's after. The Christian position is built upon three togethers. Now, of course, it's all by the grace and mercy of God and his riches in those areas. Don't get me wrong. That's exactly what it is. But it, in essence, is, now that I've come to Christ, I have been made alive together with Christ. Raised up with Christ. You know, we talk about the resurrection being very important and very powerful. And the word res the resurrection theme and concept is also used throughout the scripture to describe you and I as Christians. 
Why, why are we different now? Because we were raised from being dead in trespasses and raised to new life in Christ. Because instead of having the control and the power and the essence of our sin nature in the world and Satan, now Christ himself has impacted our lives. And when we turn our lives over him, begin to follow him, we are raised up to be with him. How else could he call us brothers and sisters? How else could he talk about us in terms of being joint heirs with the kingdom? Because we're being raised up. And secondly, we not only have been made alive together and raised up together, but third, we've been made to set together with Christ. I love the way that's phrased there in verse 6. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, in the Oriental world, if you are an authority who is teaching, or if you are an authority who has a place of importance, you don't stand. A servant stands. A worker stands. So like if this was an Oriental-based or Hebrew-based back in that day class, I would not be standing at a podium, but instead we would have a nice cushionable chair up here, and I would be setting, we might have a table in front, but I'd be setting to teach because I have authority when I'm teaching you the Word of God, or I have authority of knowledge. And notice it says we are seated with Christ in the, uh, the, the heavenlies. Do you think that carries with it the fact that by nature God wants us to be involved in what he's in? He wants us to be involved in the authority that he has as we work in the world? I love verse 7 though. After he talks about us being made alive with Christ and raised up together with Christ, being given authority with Christ, being made to set with him. But verse 7 is a powerful verse, and it's a verse you need to understand. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What do you think it means he would show the immeasurable riches of his grace? Think about what that phrase might mean. Does it mean that going to heaven will mean that you will look at that and say, my goodness, look at all God's given me. What riches I have because I'm here in heaven now. I've heard some try to teach it that way. I don't agree with that. I think basically what the text is saying there, if I can kind of use a different paraphrasing of language on it, I think it's really saying that God makes you and I display cases for his grace. It's like God is a collector. And you go to see a collector who's showing his collection. Some things will be in a display case. I, I've got a display case with old fountain pens I've collected. My first writing instrument was not a ballpoint, but a fountain pen. Now the year after that, they all moved to those silly big ballpoint pens. But my first writing experience was with that old 
Schaefer, you know, see-through colored barrel, fountain pen to stick the cartridge in, you know. And so I've never gotten over the fountain pens. I love them. I have several of them. And I start, started several years ago collecting collectible fountain pens. And so if I ever show you my fountain pens, I'll, I'll open up a collection case, a display type case. And out of that case for display, I'll bring out and show you some old Schaefer and some old Parker fountain pens I've got designed. I have one that came back from the Depression era. And we don't know the name of the company because it, it's not really good and visible, but it was one of those little small, thin, short fountain pens that the bankers used to carry right there in their vest pocket. You know, the bankers all had the three-piece vest suits, and, and so they would pull out that little fountain pen, unwrap it daintily, put it together, and make the one quick signature and let the workers do their work. I love my fountain pens, and I'd show them to you. It, I have that case. Why? So I can display those collectible fountain pens. Remember what God and Satan talked about in the book of Job, first chapter? And, and Job was saying to him, in effect, or uh, Satan was saying to God, in effect, well, uh, Da 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 da, and making accusations because that's part of the nature of, of Satan is he's the accuser. He's always trying to cause trouble with God. He's always accusing God of not being good and right. Always trying to cause trouble. And anyway, he looked and he said, uh, "God said, you want you want to see something that is good? Look down there and see my servant Job." What in other words? What did he say to Satan about Job? He said, "There's a display case." A display of one of my children. Just look at that. Look at Job. Once Satan argued with him, didn't he? No wonder he follows you and believes in you. You're so good to him. Well, that's okay. Do some things to him. It'll be okay. And God lets Satan do some things. He puts restrictions on him because Satan is not infinite and all-powerful. And and he keeps going back to Job, and Job doesn't curse God. Job doesn't. And God keeps being able to say, look at my display case. Look at my display case of grace. In my own mind, feeble as it is sometimes, I somehow think that in the great spiritual war that goes on in the heavenlies all around us right now that the Bible talks about, God points to us and says, see my display case of grace? Looky there, that's one of mine. Over there, see, that's one of mine. Look, that's one of mine too. We are God's display of all that he is doing to reclaim and rebuild and take back from the enemy what was usurped. I uh, I've got a lot of preacher brothers and teacher brothers who are big into what I call the culture war. They're they're always fighting against the bad around us and how bad the country's got and all the sin around us and all of that, and they keep wanting to find ways to organize and and go in and stop it. 
I've done a lot of thinking because of the, a lot of the things that uh, my brothers have said about what they need to do. And of course, they'll explain where he's doing They're doing it from a prophetic role. They're being prophets. My problem is I keep thinking. And as I'm thinking through what the message of Scripture is about the nature of things as they are, my, one of my most famous words in my own mind is, if you're around me very long, you'll hear me say it. Well, that's the way it is. I'm big on trying to figure out the way it is and dealing with it. But now, does God intend for us to mobilize as an army singing onward Christian soldiers and go into the world and remake it into a theocracy? Make it all God and Christian-like? And is the world just waiting for us to come do that with open arms? No. We have an enemy. That enemy took control of everything around us, around the world, around making war at all times. So what are we going to do if we're going to answer and the call of God to reach out with the gospel. Here's what I would rather see us as with the gospel. We are not soldiers standing up and taking the gospel into the world. We, we are rather infiltrators reaching into the enemy's strongholds and attacking at the heart of things and bringing truth to the enemy's camps. And one by one we knock off the enemy. Not killing them, but bringing them to Christ. One by one by one. Do you ever know someone that got involved in politics for the right reasons? And they were a part of Christian politics, quote unquote. And they worked hard. And they got a politician elected. Yeah, maybe you've done it. Have you ever worked hard to get a, a Christian politician elected? And of course, what do the Christian politicians tell you while you're getting elected? I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and God's going to help us do that, and on and on and on. And they hold their Bible just right, you know? And generally, it's always a King James Version Bible. And what happens one year after they're in office? Nothing. No changes have occurred. And what happens when it's time for them to run for re-election? Oh, they call you up and say, I need your help again, da-da-da, da-da-da, and, and this is all we're going to do, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. I guarantee you some of those old boys have gone back to the same churches for 10, 15, 20 years telling them the same kind of red meat to get well-meaning people to get behind them and vote because they want to see things changed. If you want to see things changed, get into a good news club and change the life of a child so they'll grow up with Jesus. Because I'm going to tell you the truth of the matter is when you look at all the statistics and the state status of our culture as it really is, it is what it is, if you don't reach that child before they get into college, you're generally not going to reach them. It is absolutely unusual 
It happens, yes. That's why I use the word unusual. It is absolutely unusual for a person in their 20s and 30s to come to Christ. If they do, it's going to come because in a moment of crisis or a time of crisis, some meaningful, caring person who's already a Christian talks to them about the gospel and the crisis has made their heart more open to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. But you talk to a child, they got an open heart towards God still. They've not been learned to close it down. What about your grandchildren? You want to change the world? Change your grandchildren. Spend time with them. Get to know them. Let them learn to ask you questions. Be a resource for them. Well, I've got to move on. Because the means of conversion is very important. It's found in verses uh, 8 and 9 where it says, For by grace, through faith, not of works, not a gift that's a gift of God. No one can be saved on their own. It's all because of God. There's some real key words here that describe the means of conversion. It is by, B-Y, by grace. Not you buy it, B-U-I, but it is by by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So the way we are saved is not by faith. No, don't throw rocks at me yet. We are saved by grace, through, through faith. Let me give you a mental image of that. I had a nice diagram on my PowerPoint, which we're not looking at right now, but that's okay. I'll bring you a copy of it next week. Uh, I can print it out. But this diagram is the diagram of a funnel. I call it the funnel of faith. Okay, God is above me, and I'm a funnel. See, don't I look like a funnel? I'm a funnel, and I, as a believer, I'll take my funnel, and I'll put my funnel up, and through the funnel, through faith, because faith is the funnel, comes God's grace. And the grace is what saves me. When I get a really bad infection, and I'm sick, and I'm given antibiotics, I go to the store and I get the antibiotics, and the antibiotics come to me in a, a bottle. That's That's faith. I pick up the bottle that's putting my funnel up, but the antibiotics don't do anything unless they become a part of me and I take them in me. Grace is like that. Grace is what comes into us through God's power when we put our faith up to Him so that He can bring grace to us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, I can't save myself, only God can save me. Not of works. I can't boast about it. So legalism is out the door, isn't it? And then finally we get to the purpose. For we are his workmanship, created by God, or created in Jesus Christ, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
In other words, the purpose of creation can be stated as we are by God for God. We are created by God for God. You're not created to be reformed. Take all your badness and reform you and make you good. So you're, you're just kind of, but you're made, you're, you're made new. Jesus talks about being born again. Grace takes over and changes you. And you're now created by God and for Him. There really is no such thing as a believer who says, I don't know my meaning and purpose in life. What do you mean you don't know your meaning and purpose in life? Quit navel-gazing and quit looking at your belly button. And understand that you were created for God. Oh, you mean I've got to be a preacher somewhere, a pastor? No. Good Lord, no. we got enough of those guys running around. We need Christians who are focused on God and walking with God in their lives and whatever walk of life they go through. I'll never forget the Christmas song and what it came to mean with me one day. God in the scripture says we're to call Jesus what? When he's born. Emmanuel. And then he tells us what Emmanuel means. So he gives you a, a translation of it from the Hebrew, literal translation. Emmanuel is God with us. In essence, the Christian life is a God with us life because we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior. So maybe we need to get up every morning knowing that God is with us because we're followers of Christ now. And we need to start every morning by saying, Lord, what are we going to do today? No, not, not get up in the morning with your prayer time and have your list of things you want God to help you with today. Say, God, I want you to do this. 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 And Lord, I'm going to do this. you got to help me. I'm going to do this. you got to help me. And Lord, I'm going to do this. you got to help me. Maybe you need to kind of have a rearrangement of attitude that when I get up tomorrow, I'm going to say, God, what are we going to do today as I go about my day, as I go about my life? Oh, you might have things you need to pray for God's strength in that are happening and coming to you. But the essence of your day is not so much your to-do list, but inviting God to be with you as you do it. What are we going to do today, Lord? So I ask you those questions again. Are you sin-focused, works-focused as a Christian? Are you God-and-walk-focused? In other words, are you looking at the Christian life as a list of do's and don'ts or legalism? Are you looking at the Christian life as a, I'm walking with God today? Oh, if I stumble and fall, he's there to help me get back up. Will I be perfect? No. But when I make a mistake, when I fail, even if I rebel, he's there to say, you don't need to do that, Chuck. Now, Chuck, you know that won't work. When you walk with God, you can let yourself hear him say, now, Chuck, that's not going to work, and you know it won't. Why don't you quit doing that? But he never goes away. We don't have to do something to earn God's 
uh, being with us. God is with us. The issue is, are we grieving him because we're not paying attention to him as he walks with us? Are we being open to his leadership and his guidance as we walk with him? A big one might be then the final question is, am I a saved by grace but live by works Christian? If you were to analyze the different denominational and Christian worldviews together, you would find that the biggest problem in understanding how Christians can work together and get together is not so much the essence of the faith about the gospel. But the biggest struggle between the groupings of us is how we view the Christian life after we start it. Or in other words, discipleship. Now, I know that theologians in the Roman Catholic Church have a different theological perspective about salvation than evangelicals such as me and you do. But have you ever talked to your Catholic friends who aren't theologians in Catholicism, just go to church and practice their Catholic faith they're taught and they do it by rote? Have you ever talk to them and ask them theological questions? I remember I'm on a plane to China one time with two guys that are on the trip with me for a business trip we're going on. And uh, one is a, a Hispanic guy from uh, South Texas who is a state representative. And one is a Hispanic businessman from Central America who's become an American citizen and up here and in business. And I'm sitting between the two of them on the plane seat and we're talking and, and one of them says to me, he says, uh, Chuck, uh, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yes, I am. And, and I said, I'm a Christian too. And I said, well, uh, tell me something as a Christian. What do you, how are you saved how are you saved from your sins? I just put it that way. Both of them said it almost in unison. Oh, we're saved by Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross. Now, if you were to talk to them about how to live the Christian life, there's where the rub comes back. So in other words, the concept of discipleship is more often where the rub is than the concept of the essence of what is Christianity. Our differences may not be in life so much what we believe, but what we do, what we practice. Do you practice a life of saved by grace and also live by grace? Because remember, grace is God's empowering you to be able to do and have what you can't do on your own. So when you face those things today and tomorrow and the next week that you can't do and you can't be on your own, that's when God walking right beside you says, okay, I'll help. I'll help. I'll make it through. I'll help you make it through. Now, my grace is going to do it. Grace does not just save you. It keeps you. It enables you. It strengthens you. 
grace is not just the beginning of my relationship with God. It's the continuation of it. It's the fulfillment of it. It's the expansion of it. And someday when God calls me home, it will be the emancipation of my life as I'm brought into his presence. All because of grace. Let's bow our heads, Lord. We ask that, Father, now you would speak to us in your word as you have, and let it be not something we just close the pages of our book or click off of our tablet, but, Lord, let it be something that we take with us in your word and let us take grace and make it more real to us than ever before. Thank you, Lord, for walking with us as your children. Help us be more aware, Lord, that you are here with us as we live this life. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.